Trev, what's Fortnite, and why is there so much porn of it? Fortnite is a is a battle royale game where like uh, so like you can think about it in terms of um, games like uh, PUBG. Have has anyone uh, are you guys familiar at all with like uh, Player Unknown's Battleground? Oh yeah, or H one Z one. Okay, I'm not. I can say with quite some confidence that I have never gamed. I actually uh, you know spend a lot of time uh, talking to women. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I don't. I well, don't there, really there are women that. characters in both games. Um, I'm not sure there you know are that women. women also there play women video characters. games. I know that's like wild new information, but yeah. Oh, well, now now you're talking my language. You mean <laughs> you mean women who can be controlled? Say we formally open the show, boys and girls. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Yeah, so I Ooh. will now officially welcome everybody uh, back to Trash Future, the podcast for how the future is trash. Uh, buy a shirt, commodify your descent with a shirt. Absolutely, I strongly recommend. Suze is wearing a custom text one right now that I says "Goblin Mindset" on it. Yeah. Not a joke from the show, a private joke between us. <laughs> wow, oh, that's great. I like that. <laughs> so that's fun. Yeah, it uh, is. Yeah, that's it's good. a joke that's never been on the show before. <laughs> I guess you it is now. to become part of this elite inner circle of DM in jokes. <laughs> buy the um, shirt. So yeah, buy a shirt um, and, and support. support From uh, friend of the show, Tiny Comrade. Yeah, support friend of the show, Tiny Comrade. I am Riley. You can find me on Twitter at Rala. You may remember me from all other episodes of this show. Uh, who am I here in the living room with? Hey, I'm Suze. I'm on Twitter at Suze Marsupial, and you may remember me from a previous episode where I am genuinely struggling to remember what we talked about. Uh, President's Club. But, uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, but it was a lot of fun, and we have a couple of friends because we're all friends in the ball. Uh, in the ball, skyping in today. Um, I am. Uh, I'm Trevor Strunk. I I do a podcast called uh, No Cartridge. Uh, you might know me from Twitter. I'm at Hagelbun. Um. I talk about video games and leftism and stuff like that. Sometimes people will DM me really long and rambling questions about Marx. And uh, depending on uh, my uh, abilities at the moment, I will answer it or forget about it. And from Mother Russia. It's me, the seditious Russian element, Milo Edwards. You might also remember me from every previous episode of this podcast. Uh, I'm currently heading up a campaign to get more women into gaming by releasing a pink edition of Monster Energy. I think that's like the right and progressive thing to do. Um, yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter at Milo underscore Edwards. So yeah, cool. Let's uh, what's let's, in the news this week? Let's Riley? let's get let's get into it. Let's do the the, the fucking local local news roundup. Yeah, <laughs> welcome Who's ready? to BBC um, Look East. Ooh. Let's uh, I was gonna do um, we were I was gonna do a couple of because we're gonna be talking about like gaming and programming and stuff. I was gonna do a couple of selections from Ian Miles Chong associated blog, uh, Incel Corner, which is hilarious because it's like his whole brand is that I guess. He doesn't fuck and is mad about it, but is good at games, but is mostly mad at games because some games have women in them. Mm. Um, but I mean, I was then sent um, this article uh, by a friend of the show, uh, Andrew, who you can find at Old Man Ontario. Uh, uh, he is a good follow. I, I, I recommend him. But he sent me this, uh, this article uh, that said the title is Welcome to Powder Mountain, a mm -hmm. utopian club Please. for the millennial elite. Please like, tell me it's somewhere we can do a lot of coke. <laughs> I mean, it really, they didn't think of that. Did that would have been they? such a better idea. No, I think that's a feature, right? Like, I'm sure you, if at a, an exclusive, yeah, Although, there's got to be some coke there. <laughs> I did initially misread it because I wasn't wearing my glasses as Power Mountain, which I think in some ways is even more fitting. Yeah, oh, God. Um. So tell us when, about this exclusive well, resort, well, Riley. When, what is its motivational statement? This is what I love. Uh, at the, the byline, no, the byline of the article, the summary line of the article is, when these young entrepreneurs bought a remote ski resort in Utah, they dreamed of a... Mormon um, paradise. Everybody has to now bite down on a pencil. Uh, they dreamed of an exclusive, socially conscious community. Mm -hmm. Ugh! <laughs> So good. Oh, you didn't read the second part, though, which is, is this the future or Mount Olympus for Generation Me? Uh, which I don't understand as a... <laughs> wouldn't Mount Olympus for Generation Me also be the future? Like, wouldn't that there be, was like, a Mount Olympus good? for previous generations. Like, oh, yeah, the, bo the boomers <laughs> on their rarefied clifftop perch in the heavens looking down upon us mortals who are merely renting a Mount Normandy Olympus. Beach was the uh, Mount Olympus for the greatest generation. 
Well, that's just Mount Olympus. <laughs> so is anyone else invited to this ski resort, or is it literally just like six guys having I, some fun? I, I think, I mean, like, all the millennial elite are basically just people whose parents were born rich. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's the, uh, the, what I love is just, is just that it, it has this idea that it, it is both exclusive and socially conscious, yeah. which is, pardon the pun, peak liberalism. Hey. Thank you. Oh, they should rename it that. <laughs> Yeah, like um, we want it. We want to be socially conscious, but we also want to do it in an environment free from the elements of society we don't like. Well, well yeah, you know, I mean, it is in Utah, and it's on a, a snow-covered mountain, and it's like, wow, geez, guys, you, well, I could, could, you, could you be a little less on the nose about this? I can, I can tell you exact. I can tell you what it, what what they're saying. Like, it's like basically like rich people, like fucking Peter Thiel, you know, the fucking tech vampire, yeah, chills out not there. Not a millennial. Martin, so- no, he's a millennial like Dan Ninen. Oh, yeah. um, Martin Hello, Sorrell, uh, Hollywood producers, whatever. Like basically, just old rich people are going to try and like you know bang young millennials, presumably, or take their blood in the case bang of bang young Thiel. millennials and then take their so, blood when their guard is down because they're in that post-orgasmic glow, <laughs> gorilla mindset. What they're actually doing is it says uh, during the February weekend I attend, uh, there are only three talks, each lasting an hour. The remaining three days are spent skiing, snowshoeing, eating and drinking, relaxing in yoga or spa sessions, or partying in crowded hot tubs. Again, I can't emphasize enough, this clearly is just like an old people fuck palace where they're going to try to take people's blood. Oh man, I'm reading more into this. It's like, it's not just that, but there's also like uh, weird filigree around it. Like there's the, they talk about the other stuff they do, like further future. Did you get to that part? Uh, No, go ahead. It is. It's a few paragraphs down. It's a gathering in the Nevada desert attended by the ex-Google CEO Eric Schmidt, which has been described as "quote Burning Man for the one percent." Burning Man is the already prom- Burning Man for the one percent. I was. I was about to well, say. Well, this is this is the one percent of the one percent of Burning Man. Um, <laughs> it's like if you went to Burning Man, you're like the people here aren't terrible enough. Something I think is interesting is how this drive people have, um, especially the more money they have. To, to make their holidays seem somehow important. Like, you know, if you have mm. close on a billion dollars, just go and, you know, enjoy yourself and, like, do what the hell you want. But people seem to reach this point where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, we could just, like, you know, go skiing and, like, you know, make out in hot tubs and have a bunch of fun. But but it, it has to be it has to be more than that. You know, it is not either enjoyable enough or enough of a, a, a status symbol to just have a great holiday. But, you know, it is it's it's political somehow or not even political, if that's a bit of a dirty word in the context. But it's, you know, it, it's for the future or it's building something new. And um, to me, that that just makes it a hundred times more tiresome than just rich people doing rich people shit. Well, it's the uh, if this is almost this, this is perfect. This leads into this perfectly um, where he uh, this is sort of a, a, an attendee at the at the, at the festival mm-hmm. being discussed, talked to by the driver, someone called Chala. Uh, what's his name? Remy Chawla, uh, the chief executive of an app designing company. Uh, nice says, and specific, though. When I hitch a ride in Chawla's SUV, he tells me how he came to invest in Powder Mountain. He's one of the investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd been on a disappointing trip to Verbier, where the food was, quote, not that progressive. Oh, but then he went to Utah, where he what? bumped into 30 of his friends, and there was a moment when they served coconut water. Coconut water was the thing he'd been craving in Switzerland. Um, but it was an experience on a summit cruise ship that Chala said made the biggest impression. He was on the deck, casually talking to the founder of a not-for-profit company whose career had been devoted, quote, to building schools in Africa or something like that, and I felt embarrassed to say I run a technology company. So Chala said the first thing he did when he got off the boat was to set up his own, now defunct, not-for-profit company, <laughs> the Charity Swear Box, a website connected to Twitter that would monitor how often a user swears in their tweets and recommend they, na- they make a donation to charity. Groundbreaking. Um, <laughs> there's something about that that makes you feel very much at the mercy of it all, isn't it? Like it, that's that's the Mount Olympusness, right? Where it's like that's why that's why yeah. this thing makes me so mad is that these fucking simpletons, um, these these basically these sort of sort of wide-eyed lottery winners, uh, have essentially just decided that they are the gods, and that's what socially conscious and exclusive means. It's they're now going to tinker with society and make it better for all of us from their literal mountain stronghold. And you're right, there is a real kind of, uh, kind of, yeah, element of, like, mythology there in that, you know, every single thing that went down on Mount Olympus and the impact that it had yeah. in, like, actual people's lives I- was always at some whim based on pettiness or jealousy or getting one up on somebody. So like, I- it's... Uh, it's. 
I want Peter Thiel to dress up as a swan and impregnate women in the lowlands of Utah and then disappear <laughs> into the ether. Like, I, I can't wait for one of these guys to decide that to, like, fix discourse on Twitter, they're going to give everyone an electric shock collar that, you know, if you swear at a blue tick person, gives you a little, tzz, you know, because that's exactly, that's what charity swear box is. It's like, yeah. you, you dirty people all need to get better. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to make a little thing that kind of just puts you in a little bit more of a box. And then you're going to base. It's basically I'm going to make a little cop, more that's going <gasps> to make a tiny cop that can't actually hurt you because he's really small. But he's going to basically. But he's going to annoy the shit out gonna, of you. I'm, I'm yeah. going to build an annoying cop, and yeah. that's my contribution to the world. That feed the cop inside your phone. <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, it, uh, the thing that gets me about it is the is the um, progressive food. Yeah, that's really <laughs> wild, isn't it? Like. <laughs> Food was not that progressive. I mean, like, there's there's two things, right? Like, what's progressive food? The one thing, like, does he mean sourcing or I don't I don't understand. No, I mean, you know, it's not. And like, then the sec like the second thing that makes me understand less is that he needs coconut water in Switzerland, and it's like there's nothing environmentally uh, progressive about uh, you know importing bottles of coconut water to Switzerland because the coconut, as far as I know is not native to Switzerland. I've never been, so I don't necessarily know. There's a lot of stuff in Switzerland that, let's say, wasn't in Switzerland originally, but is there now. What if someone made an app that made coconuts native to Switzerland? We could save the entire world. Put it on the blockchain, baby. <laughs> but yes, words like progressive become really malleable in this context. It's just like, oh, right, uh, is, is something new? Okay, then it's better, we'll do it. This is progress yeah. in terms of basically being a bourgeois taste. This is what progress's bourgeois taste looks like, not the acceptance of trans people, as Brendan O'Neill might suggest. Well, I think I think like the other thing is that like it's not it's not even like it's not even just bourgeois. It's it's also just like this tech uh, bourgeoisie uh, that you know to them literally every single element of progress, including political progress, is just the next step. Like this is the whole disrupting culture, right? Where like the the thing you do to make a better world or a more just world is just like do something different and disrupt what had happened before as opposed to just like actually considering the consequences well it's uh, if you guys think that they might be elitist uh, don't worry they have a response to that um so this is the reporter talking to another uh, of the of the uh, uh investors um he tells me he's open to the suggestion that his community is elitist these criticisms he says there's a truth to them but he insists that he strives to make authentic connections with people from all walks of life for example he says Earlier in the day, he met a worker at a ski resort who was taking guests on a tour. Quote, I literally could have said, all right, have an awesome tour. And instead, I was like, so you're here all year? And he goes, no, I'm actually from New Orleans. And I'm like, really? I like reading it like with the intonation of being like, really? <laughs> like he just like doubts that the guy's from New Orleans. Like he's just making it up. Is that real? <laughs> Did you just make this up I to just... aggravate me? Or is this are these words that you're reading from a screen? Like... <laughs> Mother of God. That's, that's how he connects with people, is, he, is one question, and then, huh, you don't say. <laughs> anyway, uh, give me your blood. It should be said, and I, I don't want this to get lost, because it's very good that Paul Lewis, the person who wrote this article, is very resistant to these people. Mm. Like, this is not a nice piece about these no, people. No, you know, you're right. It's yeah. not like some puff piece, which a lot of these things do. They get, you know, yeah. un- uncritical write-ups. Um He's definitely taking it to him, like he, he, you know, when he talks about like is now talking about how he ta- sits in the front seat of Uber taxis and stuff, and he said, uh, Paul Lewis uh, asks him, which I just kind of applauded, uh, how many Uber drivers he's invited to summit, and Riz now doesn't say. <laughs> I really like the, I really like what he says there, where he says like when you start to engage with these people, you realize the humanity in everyone and how unbelievable they are, and I think this is like. People critique ID politics, and I think, like, the, the criticism of ID politics has become, you know, like, I started, I did my PhD in English at a school that has a lot of people who work in, basically, the critique of identity politics. So it was something that I was getting into in, like, 2010, and I believe that from 2010 to 2018, it's become, like, much more of a blunt instrument as opposed to, like, a careful critique, and so you get a lot of uh, the very real complaints that, you know, centering class decenters race and gender in a way that... I don't think it was in 2010. Um, however, I feel like if you want a good uh, distillation of why ID politics can be a problem or like how ID politics become a problem, it's not, you know, oh, you know, you, you're you're poor before you're black or some sort of thing like that, which people do argue and, and should be, you know, worked against. It's the thing where you say 
yeah, you know, the way to understand people is not is to like know that we're all different and respect that. Like this guy here, he's so unique. He's from New Orleans. <laughs> well, I do. Like that's declare. that's not anything. I'm I'm just sitting here thinking about how many armed guards they have. That was just like when 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 Riley started reading that paragraph about how you know, yeah, but it's like, and you can you know you can see you can see that the arguments start to form in these uh these 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 uh powder mountain <laughs> dudes' heads. It's just like yeah, oh, but we're all about being very conscious about the people in society who I must remind to stay on the other side of the fence or they will be shot. <laughs> Exactly. This is this, and you know what it is. It's the it's the, the liberal form of identity politics. What it, I think it does is it always says, oh, it always basically says we're all in this together, and that basically everyone has to play their part, and it's there they have their thing that they do because all everything is kind of sacred, and no one can transcend where they are. It's like at some point one of these people is gonna. Well, I swear to God, one of these people is gonna say actually. Uh, social mobility is bad because it reduces working class culture. It's working class mm. genocide because we're making everybody wealthy and that's going to destroy culture. That's I, what these people are going to fucking say next. I think just as I we mean, kind of oh, moving on to this topic, I think an, another thing that, that a kind of uh, a liberalized um, identity politics does is uh, position um, identity not as a site of experience and oppression as much as a site of like thought and content. So um, rather than taking, you know, this uh, systemic view that, you know, you can look at, I don't know, uh, numbers of, I don't know, w women in, in, in politics and say, you know, these things um, must be redressed so that people, you know, have like real access and whatever. They say, oh, well, you know, what we need is, is this one particular woman, uh, regardless of what she thinks, to come in here because then we'll have... Um, uh, thought in here that is like magically good because they take these categories very very bluntly they collapse them across lines of class and race and make a homogenous category woman and say well you know if we just have a little bit of woman content in here then like <laughs> magically um, yeah. this will be good and then so much of the force is lost and because those categories have been collapsed you always end up with you know women being championed as though they are you know absolute underdogs who are often extremely privileged in in every other regard and then everything kind of grinds to a halt a little bit which mm. i think is bad i wasn't sure how yeah. to end that bit that's i think fine. it's bad right they they just that's no yeah. which that this is what this is what powder mountain's gonna do they're going to disrupt society and there might be a woman around when they disrupt <laughs> well and, and sue's sue's makes sue's makes a good point about the the way that you know the bad version of id politics um focuses away from systemic uh groups and i think like you could talk about you can talk about like the condition of being a woman or the condition of being of color um as a group that like as a condition that has its own series of um systemic and uh historically layered bits of of um you know for lack of a more subtle word oppression um you you literally can't talk about the being like a being a person from New Orleans who works at a ski slope in the same way. And like, that's funny on one hand, but it's also really troubling on another where like they are doing the syllogism where they're like, yeah, like people are so unique. Like over here, here's a woman who's had to work super hard to make it to the top in tech. And over here, here's a guy who like is a chef on his off time. And it's, it's like, it's taking all these identity things and saying like, they're all the same. And since not all of them are uh, systemic, none of them are systemic. Hey guys, we're all in this Uber together. It's just that some of us are driving. <laughs> you're, ta you're taking an approach to politics that's basically trading cards, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're all the all we're, we're just we just have to collect all the identities and make a flush, and then maybe we can win enough money to finally buy a ticket out of the scorched lands, and then we too can get a cabin in Powder Mountain. Uh, if if that is, of course, the wastelands mutants don't uh, turn our bones into a necklace first. Although we call it identity politics. Um, it was, you know, never very much about identity in the individualized sense in the first place. It was about, right. you know, categories of experience that, you know, become either, um, you know, uh, enforced or, or claimed or reclaimed or a combination of both, like, identity categories. But, yeah, in its, like, you know, very, very powerful sense, and I do think it's been a very good thing, it was always about, like you say, like, you know... Um, how are you related to other people and what like identifiers that you and they may hold will shape those interactions. And I think uh, a lot of people have heard the word identity and come to the very kind of 
blunt conclusions that um, you know you guys have been talking about that really um, you know always come from established seats of power. They don't come from radical places, um, even though the thought has all been like poorly co-opted from you know um, radical thinkers who have really really struggled to get it out there. Yeah, I think that's really really well said. Well. Uh, you know what? I what I'd like to do actually is I'd like to begin talking about some people who are made frothingly furious by identity politics, <gasps> creeping into parts of the world that they don't like. That's right, everybody. We're going back into video games, and uh, Trav is going to explain uh, to me <laughs> and us just what the fuck was Gamergate? Wasn't it, wasn't it when Richard Nixon stayed in the Gamergate hotel and was surveilling people? Suze, you know what that was well. You were online at the time, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm just surprised to learn that out of the four of us, I was apparently, or maybe three of us, I was, other than Trev, I was the only one who was extremely online at yeah. the time. I did, I, yeah, I, I it's wasn't. weird, right? I had no idea what Gamergate... I, I know, like, basically, here's what I know about Gamergate. Here's kind of <laughs> what I know about Gamergate, which I know it produced Ian Miles Chong, and I know that it was like the online chat room that eventually produced the alt-right. I know it's why we have fascism and why we have that weird Ant-Man now. It's, in a way, yeah. But in some ways, no. <laughs> Are you doing yeah, the Adam Curtis voice? So basically, the, ways, the reason yeah. that Gamergate started was, I'm trying to think of a good, good way to say this, like, since, I don't know, since games have been reviewed effectively, like, I, I don't know, since, like, Nintendo Power back in the day, or even before... The question of like fairness in gaming uh, journalism or, or gaming reviews was questioned. So like this, this all came to a head. Like the most, the quickest and most useful way to say this is it all came to a head with this game called Kane and Lynch, which was this. Um, I think it was an EA game, um, and uh, yeah, basically it got really good reviews. And even before the game came out, people found out that it got super good reviews because EA just like paid the websites to say that like it just like it said okay um here's a bunch of money be sure to say that Kane and Lynch is like a 9.7 out of 10 and the game wasn't all that impressive and people just like lost their minds um and so after that there was a lot of like real doubt over like okay who why are people saying certain games are good and certain games are bad what are their what are their motives why are they you know who are who are they answering to and as most of these things do, it's sort of it didn't take a a turn against like, well, let's find more independent sources of reporting and like try and co-opt corporatism. Um, it just like went into paranoia. And the paranoia is really what spawned Gamergate in that like this sort of objectivity in games journalism became focused on people like um, particularly people like Zoe Quinn and um, I mean, it was a misogynist oh boy, I'm forgetting paranoia, her name. Uh, the, like, the feminist frequency woman. Um, Anita Sarkeesian. Uh, Anita Sarkeesian. Um, who pointed out, like, basically did, like, YouTubes of, um, and, and writing and pieces on, um, sexism in games like Hitman 2 and stuff like that, and the way women are presented in it. And the idea there was, like, they're doing the same thing that EA was doing in that they're just tanking video games, not on the basis of, are they good video games, but on the basis of external concerns. Going back to this idea where external concerns, regardless of what they are, are leveled into a particular thing. And the assumption that whether a video game is sexist is an external concern and not, in fact, yes. part of the content of that game that should be subject to a review. It's, exactly. It's, it's, it seems to be like they're, they're doing the thing then, which I sort of see happen, which is where the, they have this idea where there is the thing in itself and then there are sort of external conditions. So you, you see this um, all the time when they sort of... All, all, again, all of these people who are very much, um, you know, uh, sort of have like hot glued themselves to like a basement chair um are sort of always getting angry about Let's their stones here about uh, how much we all go outside like i i have been <laughs> outside all right as recently as last month uh the, but and i haven't hot glued myself i just choose not to move but the thing is they uh so they, they've hot glued themselves to a basement chair and then they get really really mad about the idea of there being like quotas for women on boards now of course there shouldn't be boards but let's not let's get past that which is that they get really pissed about it because they're like, oh, and an equally qualified man wouldn't have gotten the position. And it's like, no, that's the problem. A less qualified man would have gotten the position because these things aren't <laughs> externalities, you dipshit. Anyway, carry yeah, on. Yeah, and I mean, in, in Gamergate, the, the big concern was also, like, not just the, the concerns about quotas and stuff, but also that very cultural Marxist, uh, quote-unquote cultural Marxist. I obviously there's being no cultural, cultural Marxism. But, like, the, the cultural Marxist paranoia where it's like, oh... 
not only is are, is that happening, but it's all based on a series of lies that can be disproven via science or disproven via like our handpicked social uh, social servants and stuff. And so this is how Gamergate kind of rolled into it. Like the main thing they ended up focusing on was this question of sexism because it was the one that got the most pushback because no one's like no one in gaming is ever going to tell you like, hey, man, like Polygon only produces legit reviews all the time. Uh, let alone GameSpot or something like that. Like, I like people. I have friends at Polygon. I have friends at, uh, 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 you know, all the various places you could want. At um, uh, One of the, my first interviews was with, was with um, uh, the main guy at uh, Giant Bomb. Like, I, I know these people, and they're all very nice, and I have nothing bad to say about them. But, like... You could have just stopped at I Have Friends, and you would have impressed us. <laughs> but, like, their, their, their work, like, you know, it's not always even and, and no one would say it is. And especially at the bigger ones where they outsource it or are paid for it, it's kind of rough. And like, I think everyone would say like, yeah, OK, yeah, I got a point there. But the sexism stuff was so unhinged and bizarre and hateful that that's what got the pushback. And so that's where people, the the grifters of the world um, found purchase. Yeah. And I think we should really emphasize that, like. It was death threats and threats of violence, you know, it was, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a, you know, I think Gamergate's a really good example of one of the first big moments on the internet where we had to start thinking in a whole new kind of mode of communication about that real material ground between speech and, and action and the, yes. the way that speech is an action at, like, certain points when, you know, people were... You know, the people, uh, the women mostly who were very, very much targeted by it were, you know, they they were they were not just like, you know, potentially in material danger, but the sheer volume of just absolute um, vitriol. And and I do think it makes a difference that it's not like general vitriol, like, oh, you're a dickhead and I hate you, but it's like a gendered vitriol. And I think some of the stuff that Sarkeesian got was, you know, quite violently anti-Semitic as well, which, you know you definitely get when people become obsessed with things like cultural Marxism and a lot of like racist theories that they have about that, that, you know, it was an, it was like a, it was like a years long, incredibly violent speech act that was, you know, directed at certain individuals, but then, you know, whole communities of people online who endured this and that, that means something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like this is, you start to see that focus come into clearer, form with two things one being that a lot of the gamergate um a lot of like the 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 nexus of gamergate happened on 4chan um in in the v uh backslash v section which is their video game section and then also in uh in poll which is the the super like people know poll now because it's like the ultra unhinged like trump uh openly nazi fascist um bulletin board of our time um but I mean, 4chan was really the place where a lot of the Gamergate stuff happened, where a lot of like the Gamergate ops happened, where they tried to make you know fake hashtags and stuff, um, and Twitter. But mostly 4chan was where like the the main planning happened. And then also the other thing is like the people who joined on um, are people that are like they basically it's a shotgun effect and it leads to your Alex Joneses. So like who have an even bigger shotgun effect. Like Cernovich became popular. Uh, at a higher level because of Gamergate, right? Like he basically locked on to Gamergate as like the 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 quote unquote lawyer of Gamergate. Cernovich was a was a pickup artist guy first. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that's the guerrilla mindset stuff. Yeah, like it's um, it's, it's unsurprising just, that this stuff got so sort of that sort of the that the reaction and the misogyny were so conflated because mm-hmm. like it was yeah. Cernovich was hit very hard by the death of Harambe and he went a bit off the rails after that. <laughs> <laughs> so when cuz isn't one of the sort of things that I kind of cuz I I've, I've been putting piecing this together like a sort of internet detective uh trying to figure out what the fuck this was cuz a gate usually refers to a single event or a controversy rather than like yeah. even an imagined one or a sort of outdoors sort of metal hinged thing. No, it's never that anymore. We don't have gates like that anymore. Uh, it's, it's a thing of the past. The future is now, old man. Well, it's that you, one of the things that you see is that they say, "Oh, video games are a safe space for men," as though there isn't, and, and so like I think that that and it's it's this thing where I think you see where you it's like this 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 happens over and over again, sort of when as fascist movements or proto-fascist movements are born, which is a one a, a group that is experiencing sort of economic insecurity, but is still kind of dominant in lots of other different ways, you know, is seeing itself kind of pushed down certain hierarchies, and one of the things I always liked. Um, is as a sort of description of fascism 
is that fascism is a reaction to capitalism when capitalism damages the hierarchies that it that they like. And so mm-hmm. it's like so they need to think like we're it's like we like we are taking we take off all of our culture from these big game companies and these reviewers. Uh, we are basically economically dislocated. We're very pissed, and we don't have a class analysis. And so instead, we're but we're and so but and so we because we see and we're pissed, and we're going to direct our anger sort of to the side and down. I get you. Yeah, and, I don't and you just want to know why they made Lara Croft's boobs smaller? Is that so much to ask? <laughs> I don't think that that's invalid when we're talking, you know, as as one strand of explanation in yeah, like the general one. fascist moment one. that we're having. But you know, a lot of people use it as the uh, as the only one, and I I don't think that's useful. But but with Gamergate, I don't know. Like, there's a part of me that thinks that one of the scariest things about Gamergate is that it wasn't that complicated. In my mind, it literally was. You know lots and lots and lots of men mostly white men who realized that something that they thought was a space that they dominated was actually already populated by people not like them belonging to groups that they derided and i think one of the reasons that gamergate was so shocking to people is that you know in like the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s as a culture you know, in terms of kind of kind of you know mainstream media culture, really dropped the ball on how endemic, systemic, and violent a, a lot of these prejudices are. So, like, yeah, I'm sure that you know there's like other factors there, but I think that the standout lesson from it is always like the unbelievable violence, rhetorical and otherwise, of men when they assume that they are entitled to a space and then realize that they are not alone there. And I think that that is not too simplistic a central lesson to take. I think it's a really important one, especially when we look at the kind of other movements that, you know, came out of this as a fertile ground. I want to, yeah. I want to think about some of the other movements. Like, mm. we talk about this as kind of was the, the almost like the egg of the alt-right, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah. like, this was, so you, would, you, would you guys say, like, this is kind of the moment where a lot of these guys went from basically being nihilists who wanted to shock people when they all kind of became political because yeah i mean think about it think about it this way like y- you you have so many people who like gamergate i mean even ian miles chong like this is someone who just wants to be popular online like clearly he was uh like he was what he would in his own terms he would he is what he would call himself an sjw like two and a half years ago and then just like shifted gears i mean this is like Gamergate is one of those things that attracts a lot of people because it's about games. And and what I found by like covering games as I have it for the past I don't know like year and a half is that like it really is an empty signifier in a lot of ways. Like you can get people who think who who kind of like take games and like think about them in a hundred different ways, a thousand different ways. Yeah. And so like if you tell a group of people like on 4chan or you know goons or any like you know the weirdos who used to go to like rotten.com or something like that right like all those sort of disaffected kids uh mostly again men mostly again white men um if you tell them like hey they're attacking games then you get them all in the same space and you're not going to get them in the same space if you say like hey we need to protect the white race or hey like you know um the 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 liberals and the jews are at it again but it's not so hard to get them to those places after you get them all the in the same The most ambitious place. crossover of all time. Uh, and I think maybe, like, you'll disagree with me here, and, and that's fine, it's all part of the conversation, but I do think, I don't know, I do think there's a reason that it's not that difficult to get people to those places. I don't know, I try, oh, yeah, and, I try and, like, generally think about politics in terms of, you know, people... <sighs> People make their choices and they're not that easily led. And I often think one of the big differences between the left and the right is that the right assumes that the left doesn't really believe what it says it believes. But I always assume that the right believes what it says it believes. And I think that's important to remember in these cases. To be fair, I, I don't believe anything that I say. I'm, I'm mainly in it for the <laughs> followers and the, you know, the ladies. Well, Riley, I mean, you're not we, we've kind of kicked you out of the left at yeah. this point. <laughs> Oh, whatever. I'm just uh, my own left. This is a this podcast is like heavily market <laughs> research, just based on like what we think the people who listen to it think. We will say anything, anything that you want us to say, we will say it, bitches. Which? <laughs> oh no. Um, 
sorry. I'm so sorry. But, but no, I, I agree. I agree with Suze. You want us to say that sea lions are communist? Fine, I don't care. Um, I mean, I agree with Suze though, because like there's a lines as you want. there's like a, I mean, there's a quality of the, there's a barrier, right? Like white nationalism and and, and neo Nazis have always had the barrier of they 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 aren't heaven help me for saying this they aren't good at branding um like even like even like heimbach matthew heimbach who's a very popular uh he's been arrested thank god but like very popular like uh you know fascist nazi uh figure in 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 this uh in america like heimbach's party is not technically nazi but they're they're like the the workers party the of traditionalist whatever workers and party, it's like right? okay i get it right like you're not actually a workers party like i know what you are like they're not nazis are not mm-hmm. good at branding themselves as not nazis and i think there is like despite a a total willingness to be horrible and cruel and about as reactionary as you could want them to be particularly americans are nervous about affiliating themselves with things that are openly nazi or white supremacist like they're willing to do white supremacist and Nazi and fascist things, uh, but not under that agus. Well, isn't that, it like, like a, sorry? Go ahead. That's a that's a, a wild coincidence. Therefore, yeah. that you know, so many of those logics exist expressed in you know easier to digest mainstream ways. Just you know, in the yes. core of of not just American politics and history, but you know, British European politics and history as well. You know, it is. Maybe not like a hundred percent, but you know that the, the division between the two is aesthetic, um, often more Agreed. more than anything else. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's like those know. people who eat off the light choices menu at McDonald's. It's like, well, you know what it is? It's the um, if you if you right, spoke, yeah. With... Well, and it's it's like it's like this is the this is what people say about Trump and like saying like yeah, you know, the only thing that people don't like about Trump, the reason people don't like Trump, don't like Trump, is because. Not because he's so much different than previous presidents, but because he doesn't have the same veneer of respectability as previous presidents. And if you want to think about Gamergate is to Trump as uh, or Gamergate is to um, classical conservatism as Trump is to previous uh, presidents, like there's a there's a way in which Gamergate is disliked by people who don't like really study it. And I don't like Gamergate, but like my reasons are sort of more so aligned with Susan's, which is that it's not that it's uniquely fascist it's that it gave a lot of people a good excuse to organize fascistly mm-hmm. um i think like there is there's a concern about it because it's openly supremacist as opposed to something like you know your typical 50 year old republican who would um you know very much like to jail every black person he sees but would not would would express it in a way that say like i don't know gerald ford would find uh, palatable yeah white supremacy but now with lower cholesterol <laughs> <laughs> right. No, have that's, you've been that's doing exactly white right. supremacy for years, but it's taken its toll on your heart. Well, we have a solution for you. I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to sort of almost relate that back. It's that the uh, if you asked a Nazi in 1930s Germany if they were a racist, they'd say, "Yes, of course I'm a racist. Why would you ask me that? That's a stupid question. I'll kill you just to be safe." Um, but if you ask any of these are you, guys, are you quoting like a the, primary source? There, yeah, exactly. Riley? My my great uncle from Argentina. Um, no, my um. But if you ask one of these guys, "Are you a sexist?" They're like, "What? No, Zoe Quinn is the sexist. I'm a classical right. liberal." Because it seems like they're saying no by by and so for to them because to them systemic bias doesn't exist. Anyone who is trying to like trying to like offer a female point of view is offering a point of view that's anti man and is therefore sexist. Yeah. And it's this. It, so that's why. And it, that's why it's given me the realization. Anyone who says they're a classical liberal, they probably don't care about corn law liberalization. They probably actually just hate women and like non-white people. Yeah. Systemic oh, bias yeah. only exists to the extent to which like girls won't respect the blade and fuck them. I wonder if something that we don't talk about so much, and that is not a central point, but but is 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 potentially an interesting aspect. You know, a lot of uh, different things come together to to make something as explosive as Gamergate and I wonder to what extent it was um obviously you know to games and and leisure and how people spend their free time is something you know that they're very very strongly identified with have very emotional reactions to but I also wonder whether there was a sense of uh women's proximity to technology that was policed there as well that you know it wasn't you know just about you know who plays games it was about you know the games industry and that um you know there's uh maybe if it was not always kind of explicitly um expressed or consciously part of it that one of the reasons that 
the uh, the kind of reactionary anger to that was so explosive was that you know technology and 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 and, and engineering in those fields we have we conceive of them in such ingrained ways like all of us um as as a as, as a masculine and a masculinized ground that the it's never so much the the the, the uh entrance of women into these fields because they're always already there it's it's an imagined incursion when people realize that you know these spaces are already populated by groups that that you know uh this sort of huge 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 reaction comes forth to, to guard those spaces as being gendered in a particular way what do you think riley i mean what i think is are you paul blart mall cop because that was a fantastic segue <laughs> into our final segment about Thank the games you. industry and the way that the market is fucking it up. Yeah. <laughs> this was something that we were gonna sort of sort of get into, uh, which is the way in which you know, like, like ten years ago, um, back back when uh, the air smelled better and grass was brighter, or whatever. Or maybe um, we were just you know <laughs> yeah. younger and less or hungover. Maybe yeah, we were younger and my brain still was good. Um, <laughs> we, well, no, it's it's fine now. Just it's good in a different way. Identity politics. Sorry, my sorry about your brain, my friend. Uh, so, but it's so I remember I would to get a game. I would go and I would buy one, and then you'd own the game, and then you'd play it, and then you know you'd sell it back to EB, and then they'd give you like ten bucks. But you know you could just go Is buy EB a game. like a Canadian thing. Yes, beating the system. It seems as though the the the, the dynamics of how it's going have, have changed. And you were talking to me about like the way that dev cycles have changed, the way that. The way things are marketed have changed. The way things are monetized have changed. Can you tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, dev cycles and 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 the the market. I mean, blame blame. I think centrally the uh, the advent of digital download, okay. uh, which is both like the best and worst thing to happen to gaming uh, ever. Which is like you know, as you say, Riley, you used to go and you used to go to the store and buy a game, or you know, order it online or whatever, right? Like. I can still remember, and this probably dates yeah, me. I, you wrote an onion on your belt, which was the start at the time. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I trade two bees for a nickel and use those bees to get to get a uh, ferry to Shelbyville, to get, or as we called it, Morganville. Now it's only these blockchain bee coins you can use. <laughs> oh man, someone should make a uh, someone should make bee coin and uh, and make a ton of money uh, off of people who like The Simpsons. I remember my mom having to call, like, you know, before I was old enough to call stores, I guess, uh, helping me call various, like, electronics boutiques and GameStop to hear, if, to find out if they had, like, a physical copy of Secret of Mana in so we could drive 25 minutes and buy it. Like, this is, like, that was the past, and, like, this is the same way for a lot of commodities, but gaming particularly, much like film and television, you can now, like, circumvent that entire process. Like, I can go on Steam and buy almost any game I want, and if I can't find it on Steam, I can boot up my PS4 and find it on there and download it. And I can play the game. If I have the money to do it, I can play the game in the hour or less it takes to download. Um, and then I'm there, right? And so what this does is it basically supercharges the process of purchase where and consumption. Where, like, all of a sudden, it's not enough to get a new game every so often or, like, you know... I have to play these two games because that's all the producers can make and it's all my stores have in, in stock. I'll just wait, wait it out, I guess. It's like you beat a game and all of a sudden you have 30 other games you can play and uh, there are 20 other games coming out. And if you don't keep up with the cycle as a developer, um, your game gets buried almost instantly. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's this, it's this pressure of you have to both be developing something that people are going to get excited about and then you got to get it out fast. And if it's not out fast and exactly in the way that people want it, um, you're going to get buried in negative reviews on Steam. And there's really no coming back from that. Um, there are loads of games on Steam that I will never know if they're good or not because I have 100 games to play and I'm not probably going to play something that is mostly negative reviews. Um, and so basically it's taken this hobby that had a paucity of options right you could only play so many games because you could only afford and go get so many games and have physical space for so many games to a hobby where everything's always on sale it's delivered instantly um there's a 24-hour news cycle for it and you can just drop a game uh within five hours or uh and get a refund like it it, it truly is just supercharged so what's that done i think that because the interesting question here i think is like in the relationship between the consu like the consumer of the of the games 
the developer of the games than the owners of the platform. What's that relationship like? Well, I mean, the question of like owners of the platform is a is a really interesting question because like you have people like Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo who have like a clear stake. Nintendo being the one that sort of maintained a very traditional marketplace in, in its own way, um, in that they are very console specific. You're never going to see uh, the Switch Zelda on the PC, for instance. Um, it will never happen. I, I can't even imagine a world in which they would put that on Steam. Um, you have to buy a Switch and you have to play it from there. But I mean, in a lot of ways, take so uh, my friend uh, and and recently uh, award winner, uh, along with uh, his partner and their their um, uh, business partner, uh, Scott Benson, uh, who wrote the incredible game, which everyone should just go play, uh, Night in the Woods. Um, he, you know, they his studio produced that game and they put it out. Right. And you can buy it in any number of places. You can buy it on uh, their website. You can buy it at Humble Bundle, I think. And you can buy it on Steam. You can buy it on itch.io as well. Each of those places take a certain cut. And each of those places effectively is the platform. Right. So if I buy a game on Steam, it's tough to tell whether my PC is the platform or whether Steam is the platform. In some ways, both are true. Um, and as both are true, all of a sudden, Steam takes, because they're both the marketplace and the distribution point, and the way I can play the games, they become way more powerful than any video game seller has ever been to the point that they can kind of like, they have a horizontal monopoly on, on gaming in many ways, particularly indie gaming. Um, and in terms of like producer to consumer, it just, it, 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 um, it makes it, it, it mystifies it more. It mystifies the relation more. It's easier to understand. It's easier to think that gaming isn't produced by labor, that there aren't people like mm. coding all night to do it. Um, that they just kind of appear on your computer because if you I you know it, for anyone even if you don't game I would make a steam account and just look at the amount of products that come across your desk every day um it is it is um enlightening in terms of how capitalism works I have two questions mm -hmm. um <laughs> the, the, the first one baby. is um <laughs> the the first one is um I don't even know if this is interesting to people listening, but it's interesting to me. Um, so much development in the last, I don't know, five years, maybe a bit more, is moving to, you know, continuous deployment and continuous integration. And that has, you know, had some, you know, actually quite positive impacts in terms of... Those terms? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, so um, uh, I did 10, 15 years ago, maybe, I don't know, don't, like, Google the dates... But um, we all build a, a a program together, right? And um, we uh, we can't all build it together at once, right? We have a division of labor in our team, so we all like build uh, different parts. And um, then when we're um, I'm simplifying this a lot, but you get it. Um, and then when we put all the pieces together at the end, um, there might be all sorts of parts of the code that Riley's written that conflict with parts of code that I've written. They um, they need to be joined up in a way that makes sense. Now, let's say that we've spent like a couple of months working on this. That's going to take a long time to put that all together in a way that works. Um, what um, people have been able to do in the last few years is move to um, models of um, development where um, you can set it up so that every time I make a small change to something, that uh, can be very quickly absorbed into the main base of the code and then we don't end up with this nightmare situation where it all has to be stitched up. What that, in short, allows you to do is that if you have anything that is, you know, like hosted online, for example, you can be incorporating those changes pretty much in real time as they're finished. Um, so instead of having like, you know, kind of one finished program, and if you ever want to make a change, then, you know, it's going to take a long time. Um, you can have a lot more like fluidity and flexibility. And one of my questions to Trev was going to be like, especially when you have... Um, something like um, Steam where um, it kind of seems to me as very much a non-expert that it's kind of the console and kind of the marketplace. Has mm -hmm. gaming moved to uh, a similar kind of model and what effect do you think that has had? We can cut this if this is a bad question. Wait, hang on. To just clarify this, if you buy a game on Steam, do you like play it online through Steam? You don't like actually, it doesn't actually physically reside. In, how does that work? Yeah. This was my second so question. So it's on your like, computer. You download yeah. you download the game from Steam. It lives yeah. on your computer, but you can only play it if you're logged into Steam. Okay. So okay. like 
it's effectively I, I don't know it's like ddrm or yeah ddrm if DRM, you if yeah. you know what that yeah. is like it, it's basically not ddrm drm ddrm yeah. something Digital that's dance, dance revolution yeah. management yeah. <laughs> cut that um, <laughs> well, keep that in that's a good joke um but yeah, uh, 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 Suze, if I could, if I can rephrase, I just want to make sure I'm getting your question right. So you're yeah. you're basically asking, like, the integrated model would be something like where um, it's not an end. Basically, you're talking about a process where where there's not like a specific like producer and end user, but a, a much more sort of fluid process. Is that is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, like if if I if I so if I buy a Nintendo and I buy a game for it, right, on a disc, and I mm -hmm. play it, then um, no one is going to make uh, changes while right. I own the Nintendo to that Nintendo, which means that, you know, there's going to be a, a difference between how uh, the game is played versus not. And equally, no one is going to come and change the game. But when you have platforms hosted online, if I am playing a game, does it have to be, is there an element of maintenance there or are yes. there elements of the mechanics yeah, big, or the storytelling? Yeah, that that's a really good question. Yeah. Um, there's a big element of maintenance. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, like some games will come out and people will, so uh, I'm trying to think of the, the most recent one to do this. Uh, Mafia 3 was a game that people were really excited about. And, it's a um, game called Mafia 3. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Police Mafia. 2, not, it is like, it, it goes, it goes, it goes back to Gamergate. Mafia 2 was made by a Gamergate guy, like a guy who was openly Gamergate. And, uh, and Mafia 3 was not made by- Coming out of the Gamergate closet. <laughs> but Mafia 3 was, was made by someone who was like very much not, right? And like he, uh, I believe it was he, uh, wrote a game about like a black man in uh new orleans amazingly enough ties back in again um uh we're all connected baby <laughs> the world is energy i know right really? killing killing clansmen the though. Podcast like, now. so people were really excited about it because it was it sounded like a very woke and fun video game where you got to kill a bunch of racists um and it didn't pan out very well and one of the complaints was it's really buggy it doesn't seem complete and yeah. people said wait for the dlc to buy this game right which is to say wait for wait for when everyone wait for when everything is produced and already done and then mm -hmm. put your money down because it'll be a complete game then um the most sort of radical version of this was uh uh final fantasy 14 which is an online game like fully online uh, so it's like an mmorpg sort of like a world of warcraft yeah a massive multiplayer online rpg um and the first version of it was just broken basically not broken but like people didn't like it I i'm gonna get i'm gonna get this wrong people are gonna give you email so i'm sorry but this is the basic yeah. story everybody close um, your dms after this episode <laughs> uh so like they they put out this game right and uh and people didn't like it the user base kind of died out um and then they re-released it effectively and now the current final fantasy 14 is much more enjoyed it's, it's sort of like optimized and different um but it's still Final Fantasy XIV, and in fact, that first Final Fantasy XIV can't be played anywhere. You can't, like, if you wanted to go play it, you, you cannot Forbidden do it. Game. There are YouTubes of it and stuff, there are Let's Plays, but you can't physically go back and play that game. It's gone forever. Right. Um, which is the most extreme version, but it goes back to your point, which is, like, you can be playing a game, and it'll download patches over time, and then when you pick it up again, it'll have balance patches and... and um, multiplayer games it'll have little bug fixes i mean that kind of stuff happens as it goes along so it comes into the marketplace at a much less finished um capacity and and, and that's because and so so what that's basically because if you you need to get a game out so fast you need to keep t turning them out super fast mm -hmm. and if you don't then you just fall into obscurity yeah and i mean honestly let, like you know not to not to let the the devs off the dev companies off the hook uh, it, they're using and you brought this up in 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 the in, in dm and i i thought this was a smart idea where like they're actually using people as free labor i mean all of this stuff gets marked as complaints and people will email and say you know you have to the the terms are if you say say you're playing overwatch or some sort of multiplayer um shooter right um people will say you have to make certain characters stronger or weaker and that it, relatively uh i'm sorry um uh, well, making someone stronger would be buffing them, and making someone weaker is nerfing them. Um, Thank you and, for explaining these terms to people who fuck. Sounds like something I do in my sex life. Oh. <laughs> are, are you a buff or a nerf, <laughs> Milo? <laughs> I, always, I like to employ a nerf gun in the bedroom, too. <laughs> Trev, if you were going to give us like a few kind of standout takeaways about these uh, 
changes that have happened and the impact that they have on yeah. um, both like people who game and their experience. And as you say, like not to be like forgotten, you know, the people who work and the labor that goes into games in terms of where we are now and where that might go in the future. What would your headlines be? I mean, so the one is the one is uh, Riley's point about about using your fan base as labor, which is I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. Like the 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 groups that I mean, they, they aren't quiet. They'll tell the devs what they don't like about the game. And then the devs will go back and say, like, OK, fix this. And they'll make changes and then people will complain about the changes. And it's a cycle now. Right. It's not just it's not just a finished product. It's like a game may not be Sea of Thieves just came out, which is this pirate game. Um, and people are saying like, well, give the game time. It might not be a complete game for a year, which is a, a totally foreign thing to, for a person. It's of like, like watching the first season of a show and knowing that so many shows get good in season two. That's Except exactly you right. You have to write yes. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't you trust have the to pilot write episode. Two. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, that's actually something I talked about uh, on my sort of Riley's Commie Book Club episode last time, <laughs> which was how... How dare you? How dare you steal my thunder? <laughs> Well, it was the um, it was the the idea where it's like what's happened in sort of neoliberal capitalism is that sort of we have this thing where emotions are now the main sort of fo- main sort of thing being produced, mm-hmm. and people sort of and and work kind of play kind of have just sort of collapsed into one another mm-hmm. as everything we think is fun is actually stuff that's producing value for someone else. Yep. And so when that's we right. when we're when we're playing these games and obsessingly fan fan personing over them, you know, Justin Trudeau it. Um, I mean, Justin Trudeau. Um, what we end up doing Justin Trudeau. is you uh, shut up. Uh, I'm I'm gonna silence a woman now. Uh, is what you do is you end up um, you end up in this situation where because you, where you sort of feel a sense of sort of affinity for this company and you start mm-hmm. loving this profit making enterprise yeah. because it gives you your canon and it gives you your form source of identity and well, so all of a sudden you're willing to perform this free labor. Yes, you're you're performing free labor for them because out of a sense of sort of out of a sense of emotional connection, and they're all too happy to pocket the surplus. No, you're totally right, and like this is so. This is the other the other takeaway that I have is that there's a there's a level of um, there's a level of commitment that it, to to the various companies and the various uh, uh, almost always men, although women too more and more, but, but still it's mostly a great men theory kind of, of, of game development where you get your Hideo Kojima's, uh, et cetera. So you get people like, like figureheads like Miyazaki, uh, for the, the Dark Souls games or, um, Hideo Kojima for the Metal Gear games. And they're held up as these, these brilliant auteurs, but you still hear stories about them. Like, uh, uh, me, uh, Kojima apparently at one point just like burst into the room, uh, when they were making Metal Gear Solid five and said to his devs, we need multiplayer and they'd never worked on it ever in the game. He's like, we need online multiplayer. And he left and he said, make it happen. And so people like, and and that's, that's the other thing, like the flip side of it is that's why people are talking about unionization at GDC, which is a big uh, games conference right now, devs and coders and people are talking about unionization because they're being forced to work like 80 hour weeks for no pay and no security. Meanwhile, everyone is still sort of stuck in the cult of the auteur it's a contradiction that's really not to sound like too much of a Marxist, but you know, the shoe fits. No, please do the contradiction. It's a contradiction that's coming dangerously close to resolution. Let me say that. And I think, uh, in games, you have a very potent confluence of a kind of, uh, a great man theory of art and creativity and the, the lone genius in the artistic sense and of the great man of technology and, you know, the, uh, the, the the computing genius who builds a billion dollar empire in his bedroom, you know, both of which Absolutely. are fictions that obscure labor. And, you know, in terms of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of developers, you know, writing code, doing like the both the intellectual and the physical labor of making these programs. That's a very real thing. And the great thing is, I'm going to bring it all back around, mm-hmm. is the is while they're doing all the real work. Uh, there, these people are going to be in Powder Mountain, Mountain, baby, fucking, yeah. fucking blasting rails in a hot tub yeah. and just like massaging one another's shoulders about how like genius and wonderful they all are and how socially yeah. conscious they are. And they're, they're going to do, they're going right. to make a game for the boys again. All right, um, I think that's a really yeah. strong note to leave it on. Thank you so much so. to Trev for yeah, beaming into my living room on the <laughs> hyperspace bypass think, of online. I think Suze, I think Suze is kicking me and my mixing equipment. 
out of her house. <laughs> what? Um, oh no! <laughs> no, and, I'm, and I'm back living on the street. Um, um, looks like yes. you'll have to stop at the chip shop. I've, <laughs> hey, look at, look at you before. using English slang. Right. Top of the fucking shit. <laughs> I'm so bad at this country. A famously English expression there. Yeah. Yo. Th- well, thank, yeah. thanks for having me. This was a blast. Yo, yeah, this is great. You are always welcome here on TF. The P about how the F is T. Anyway, buy a shirt. 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 Mono. <laughs> Thank you.